My name is Luke, if we haven't met. And I know we still have some people coming in. I think probably most of the legacy is going to be watching online today. A lot of COVID cases. Please continue to be praying for our community, for our healthcare workers, our first responders. Be praying for those who are on the front lines of taking care of the sick in this season. It's a very difficult year. It's a difficult December. Um, and we have a lot of people that are not able to see family. Be praying for the isolation that a lot of people are feeling as well. A lot of loneliness going around. There's so much to pray for. And we'll pray at the, at the end of this service for those, those very things. But one quick announcement I wanted to repeat from last week that we brought up was this little girl, Wasi, um, who is from a refugee camp in Rwanda. That's where her mom moved her family 20 years ago. And that is where they've lived her whole life, four years. She's got three siblings and they got the lottery here recently, moved to Knoxville. Just to give the backstory, one of our missional communities who is connected to Kin um, came across Wasi. Wasi at four has a lot of black and rotten teeth that need to be removed. Um, and then she's got some other teeth that need some intervention type of care to prevent a lot of abscess growth. So there's a lot of just dental and oral issues that Awasi is going through. Here's, here's the, the issue. They have care under 10 care for her to have all the stuff that she needs. But the next available slot is a year and a half away because of COVID, because of how difficult things are right now. A lot of surgeries are being pushed off. This would be one of those surgeries. So we did secure a dentist or Ken did, this family in the missional community, they procured a dentist that would be willing to do the work, but they need an anesthesiologist, and they don't work for free. So what we're going to do as a church is raise the money to pay for this third-party anesthesiologist to come in and quickly do the work for Owasi so that her mouth will be able to heal and grow healthy as a child. Because, listen, I mean, we're talking about a four-year-old girl, and your smile matters a lot when you're four years old, when you're 14, it matters a lot more as a girl. And we want, we want to do the best we can as a church to make a significant impact even in a, what seems to be an obscure and a niche need. We, we feel like this is a pretty big deal. We, we as a church, a church our size, we get, sometimes we get these little opportunities to swing a big bat and to make a really big difference, even if it's just in one life. This is going to be one of those cases. So we brought it up last week. Um, several people went online, and I think we've, we're right under the halfway mark for paying for this anesthesiologist. So if you're watching online, or if you're here with us and you want another opportunity to give or an opportunity to give, you can go to our giving part of our website, LegacyKnoxville.com. It's just giant up in the right-hand corner. It says give. When you get up there, there will be a pull-down menu on the giving page. One of the descriptions that you can give to is called Benevolence. And benevolence is the tag that we use to give to things like this. We've, we've had uh, several things that we've given to in the past that are like this. We usually only take up maybe a couple special gifts a year. We don't do it a lot because then it wouldn't be special anymore. But there are a couple opportunities for us to give to something like this. So if you want to do that today and help Uwasi, just encourage you to do that. If you have trouble giving, by the way, you can always get in touch with us. At info at Legacy Knoxville, and we'll help you figure out whatever the problem is. Um, but thank you for those of you who have given, and thank you if you're going to give. I know her family, her mom would appreciate that, and I know we as a church leadership team do as well. 
Um, So with that being said, go ahead and grab your Bible. And we're going to be in two passages today, Isaiah 9 and Luke 15. Luke 15, we're going to spend some solid time there as well. And while you're turning there, I've told some people this story. Um, But the day that we, the day before we packed the truck up to move to Knoxville, this is several years ago, the day before we packed the truck up to move here, I got a discount, like a one-day free deal to go to Ancestry.com. And I'd always heard about this this fascinating thing called Ancestry.com. So I went on there and I played around and I put in the information and I was able to track my genealogy all the way to where it began in the United States of America. Um, They came over on a ship. I had the shipping manifest. It had their names on it. It's pretty crazy what you could find out, right? And they came over from Europe, and they settled in Sevier County, Tennessee, of all places, right? I did not know that whenever we were going to plant the church. It wasn't even in my mind. In fact, the Thomas Graveyard is in Cosby right now. My forefathers who came here from Europe are buried right there in East Tennessee, Um, So, by God's grace, that's where we will be buried as well. But what's interesting about genealogies is that now you can get genetic results as you send in spit. You can spit in a tube, send it in, and you can find out quite a bit. There is a big upshot in revenue from these genetic genealogy companies because people are incredibly interested in where they come from. They want to know what makes them up. Who are they? Where did they come from? We all look for definition of some kind. And it's cool that technology allows us to do this now, to this level. You could, like I said, spit in a tube, send it in, and you can find out who your great, 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 great grandmother was and what percent Irish you are or whatever. But one application that it was unforeseen in the genetic genealogy testing are for those people that were born from fertility clinics looking for their father whenever their father wanted to remain anonymous. So we're talking about a donor that created a child and wanted to become anonymous. There's such a high level of confidentiality. We have a lot of kids out there that don't know who their father is. It's fascinating to me because of the anonymity protocols. There are actually family matching sites as well where you can go on and find out who your siblings are because of the genetic testing you've done. There are family reunions where people show up and they didn't realize they had dozens of siblings, not one or two, but like 12 or 15 or 30 siblings that they are basically connected to. And one of the big profound questions all of them have, who is our dad? Who is our father? Have no idea. It's interesting how some, sometimes technology will solve problems and then build new ones, Right? This is a good example of that because there is a desire for all of us to know who defined us, who our father is. One of these people that came from the fruit of a fertility clinic, Courtney McKinney, wrote in the LA Times not too long ago. She said this, I would like to know my father, though that likely will never happen due to confidentiality. The second best thing I can do is explain why the burden of anonymous parentage should not continue to be placed onto more people. You see, she's pushing for the confidentiality to drop and for kids to later on find out who their biological father is. Now listen, we've been going through the four names of Jesus as it is pronounced in Isaiah 9, and we get to the one that creates the most issues today, and that is Father. Father. Because as soon as I say the word, images are going to flood into a lot of minds. 
right? And then emotions come with that as well. Yet Christ, Jesus, fathers us. And I know that phrase sounds weird, and we're going to talk about it in a second. But what, what I want to really answer is, why does this even matter? We're about to read that he is everlasting father, says God, through the prophet Isaiah. But why do we care about that? Why does it even matter for your, your Tuesday afternoon and your Thursday morning, your weekend? Does it really affect you that Jesus fathers you? What does that even mean? Why does it matter? I mean, we're all going to go back to, to work next week. Some of us, that means we sit on our couch and we flip the laptop open, right? Some of us, we still go to a place to work. Some of us are, are going to go back to school before long. And I'm here to tell you that knowing that Christ fathers us, that's a game changer. It will help you grow as a Christian. It will develop you as a worshiper. It will help you find this thing that you hear about called intimacy with Christ. Listen, A.W. Tozer, he says it well. He says, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. How you see Christ as a father to you will change every aspect of your life. So let's just look and see why it says what it says in Isaiah. This is the word of the Lord for us today. We're going to be in chapter 9. This is where we've been for the last two weeks. And we're going to jump into verse 2. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Okay, listen, that's a dense, dense passage. And if we had seven or eight weeks to go through Isaiah 9, it still would not be enough weeks, right? That's how dense a passage like this is. But all I want you to catch at this moment is when Judah heard this, the original audience, when they heard Isaiah giving this, they were standing in the long shadow of Assyria, who was about to come in and scoop them up and carry them off like they'd done so many other nations. Assyria was not good just at conquering nations, but at cleansing them. They would change their language, change their names, change their culture, change their history. And here they are hearing this as God in his kindness uses and introduces Assyria as this tool to do as he sees fit for the good of his people and for his glory. You see, all these nations that Assyria had been scooping up and carrying off into exile, they were kind of like orphans at the mercy of this bully. And now Judah's about to join them as well. So this prophecy 
It's promising a son that is going to be born, that is going to carry in a new nation and bring peace back, right? And so when they heard this, they had no idea that this was talking about Jesus, ultimately talking about Jesus. They were thinking about their situation and their time and their moment. And it wasn't wrong for them to do that. That's how a lot of Old Testament prophecies work. A prophet is speaking to a very distinct moment for a very distinct reason. And it made sense to everybody that was listening. And then also it was speaking even more profoundly to you and to me today. That's why I love prophecy. Because he's not just talking to them, but he's telling us that redemption is going to come to a nation much bigger than Judah and rescue us and redeem us from a villain much harsher than Assyria. And in this prophecy, he says that this son, this child born, is everlasting father. That Jesus is going to be our forever father. But what does that mean? And here's the problem we really have. We're a lot like Judah. We discard fatherly care like they did. You see, they threw off the bounds of fatherly care. That's why, they, that's why they got themselves in this position. They lived in this unrestrained rebellion like a teenage rebel. They didn't want anything to do with dad. They didn't want anything to do with his care, anything to do with his rule. They want to be left alone just like we want to be left alone to chase our desires as we see fit. This is really what sin is too, right? Sin, at its very kernel, is us telling God he is holding us back. Like like a teenager would be, right? Dad, you're holding me back. This is what I want, and you're not giving it to me. And you must not have my best interests in mind. This is as old as the garden, by the way. You're just trying to hold me back. You're trying to hurt me. You don't want what I really want. I want to be gone. I want the next thing. I don't want you. I want to strike out on my own. I can do better without you. Now listen, I can't get around some of the emotions some of you have regarding, regarding your earthly fathers. I can only try to help you see that the fathering that you got in this world or did not get is just a representation, an imperfect picture of the fathering care of Jesus. It's imperfect. Because of all the characteristics we apply to Christ, hero, rescuer, general, king, friend, brother, co-heir, justifier, sanctifier, atoner, priest, sacrifice, lamb, lamb, lion, all of these things, the one that we struggle with is father, that he would care for us like a father would because some of us had some crappy dads. Some of us, we don't know who our dads are. Some of us wish we'd never met our dads. Some of us are very bitter with our dads. Some of us, our dads did the best they could, but they're kind of hamstrung because all they know is what their dads taught them, right? Even the greatest dads in the world did a very, very imperfect job because there are no perfect dads. This, in my opinion, is why this, this fathering care of the gospel, what we'll call the gospel of adoption, is probably one of the most tender angles of the gospel that we have at our disposal, where God in his kindness adopts orphans into his family forever. I think it's probably one of the more important angles of what we call the gospel. I mean, just physically. Right now in the United States, 20 million kids don't have a father at home. 20 million. Let me put that into perspective for you, okay? We've only had 15 million COVID cases confirmed, and we're calling that, rightfully, we're calling that a pandemic, right? We have 20 million 
kids with no dad in the home. This does not speak to the 20 million or 30 million or 50 million that do have a dad in the home, but the dad is emotionally distant or not there. We're talking about millions and millions of kids. 20 million without a physical father present is more than the combined population of Tennessee, Georgia, Kentucky, and Arkansas all together. Think about all that. That's what we have just in the United States of America. We looked at the rough math of that for here in Marble City back in March. Actually, it was the very last week we got to meet before everyone was sheltered in place. One out of four kids in this high school are going to graduate without a father present. It's almost 400 kids. One out of four. A lot of high risk with these kids too. Did you know that of all the suicides that we hear about on the news, that two out of three are coming from fatherless homes? Two out of three. Nine out of ten runaways are coming from fatherless homes. Seven out of ten dropouts are coming from fatherless homes. Out of all the addicts that are alive today, three out of four are coming from fatherless homes. When fathering care vanishes, consequences are radically deep. Even people that don't love Jesus would agree with that. And even if you had a father in here today and he gave it his all, did you not still feel pieces of his lack? Because again, even the best fathers are not perfect. Did, did, he, did he not say that thing when you wished he'd said something different? Did he miss a dance recital or a football game? Was he not present for you when you really needed him? When, he, when you really needed him to be caring, was he a little bit more stern? When he needed him to be more stern, he was a little bit more caring. I mean, was he not somewhat imperfect for you? Of course. Even if he's your best friend today, you still, un, you still understand what it feels like to lack definition, to need some care, to feel alone, to feel exposed, to feel full of shame. And even if he was even better than any dad who's ever existed, he's not eternal. Not in the, not in the sense that he fathers you eternally. So what does God do? In his brilliance, he builds a gospel story with all of this in mind. He's kind to those of us who crave for fatherly care. The gospel story would be a story that would speak to orphans without a family. It'd be a story that would rescue those of us who are exposed and alone and need definition and are full of shame. Friends, listen, if you're interested in being a missionary, this is probably my biggest hard application for you today. If you're interested in being what we call a legacy gospel fluent, which all that means is just to be fluent in the language of the story of God. So we have one good word, one good story from God. It's a story of how God was kind to mankind through the person of Christ who lived, died, and lived again. And it was a grace to us. And it was at his cost and it was for our benefit. This beautiful story about how God loves you and me. It's one story, but it's portable in the fact that we can tell it differently in different contexts. So it sounds differently from Uwasi's family as it might from a homeless vet or your boss or your neighbor or your teenager. And the more fluent you are in the gospel story, then the more portable all of this good news is for every waking moment in every life in every situation. Not just to be good story for salvation, but to sustain us as well. Because the gospel is not just good to make non-Christians Christians, but the gospel is a good story to sustain us, to make us content, to make us satisfied. If, 
I say all that to say, if you're interested in being a missionary, a good, healthy one that understands gospel fluency, you would do well to see the gospel of adoption as one that is relevant for just about every single person you're going to encounter forever. I mean, you get about 400 kids from this school alone. I did the math because this is what you pay me the big bucks to do. And here, and just in Knox County, just in our little school district, we have 18 high schools. I know some of you are like, no, we don't. We have like four. And you're doing the math in your head right now, aren't you? I looked it up. Agreeable. There are some schools I never heard of before, right? It had like probably 28 kids in it or something like that. But when you do all of the math, all of the high school kids, we will have about 5,000 kids graduate from school with no father present. They're going to be the ones doing your taxes. They're going to be the ones marrying your kids, living next to you. They're going to be the ones that are filling this city. So yes, this is going to be an appropriate gospel application. It's the future. And God is so kind. He weaves a story of a forever father bringing orphans close. It's a beautiful gospel. Here's a place where people get hitched up and they trip on this passage. What does it mean for Jesus to be a father? I thought he was a brother. How can he be both a brother and a father? I thought he was a co-heir. And you're right. It does say this. It says in Hebrews that he is not ashamed to be called our brother, right? We also see in Romans 8 where he is the firstborn among many brethren. And those are true passages. When Jesus is called everlasting father, that is not a reference to the first person of the Trinity, which would be God the Father. Jesus is the God is God the Son who lives to the pleasure of the Father, but he does exhibit fatherly characteristics, and he does so forever, right? Think about it. Jesus is never absent. He's never distracted when it comes to family. He's not a deadbeat. He's not emotionally distant. He's never emotionally abusive, He's not physically distant or physically abusive. He doesn't frustrate his kids. He's sacrificial for his kids. He's interested in the, even the smallest nuances of his kids. He rescues his kids. He defends his kids. He teaches his kids. He defines his kids. He sends his kids. He fathers orphans. He's a good dad. He's a good dad to us, and he does this forever. This is how he says it in John 14. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is fathering care. This is fathering care of Christ. He does find us orphans because he finds us exposed, vulnerable, undefined, full of guilt, neglected, isolated, scared, victimized, destitute, mistrustful, unable to process love, unable to give love. That's how he finds us. That's how we're found, among many other things. So Jesus, as this hero of our gospel, unorphans us and grafts us into a family tree we didn't have any business being in. But now, because of his goodness, we're in this place of belonging, a place where we belong. You see, Advent tells the story of God coming to mankind, the incarnation, baby in a manger. But let's be reminded, even in Christmas, that this baby grows up. To be a man who would be the firstborn of a new family that would father us. And we would be adopted into this family. And this God-man would advent again. Advent just means coming. He would come again to do what? To recover his family. To redeem all of creation. Because listen, between you and me, the Christmas story, it's an awful dumb one. 
if it stays all pent up in the nativity scene, if it doesn't graduate beyond Jesus being a baby, it's kind of a worthless story. I don't know what the fascination is with it. It it doesn't make any sense. It's only a helpful story. It's only good news if if it ends with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. When it says with the government on his shoulders, that's the kingdom of God. With the kingdom of God on his shoulders as he holds the weight of it with his own might and his own glory replaces the Son. Then it's an interesting story. And the story is also only a good one if you do not remain an orphan in it. How terrifying would John 14 be if he actually said, I found you as orphans, and I think I might just leave you as orphans. I think I might just leave you as I found you. But this is what we fear when we sin, isn't it? That he's just going to leave us like he found us? When we misbehave, when we're addicted to whatever we're addicted to, do we not feel like he's just going to leave us as he found us? That's why this is such good news. He is a forever father. But here's the big question we have to bring to this passage. Why would we even choose to create this kind of separation between us and this fatherly care of Christ? Why do we drive a wedge in there? It's because we're just like Judah. We're just like Judah. We find fathering to be restrictive. We think we can do better without it, ultimately. Let's look at Luke 15. Luke 15 is going to give us a good, firm view of what I'm talking about. Listen, you've read the story a million times if you've grown up in the church, right? You're going to do what I do when I hear the same story over and over again. I kind of click down maybe three gears, my engine does, and I stop picking up details. When we read this story, I want you to focus on how the son is treated by the posture of the father and how the father is treated according to the posture of the son, okay? This is Luke 15. This is the story of the prodigal son. We're going to jump in verse 11, and we're going to stop in just a second. I want you to see a certain thing in this. And he said, he meaning Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property and reckless living. Pause. This is what he's saying. Dad, it'd be better off if you were dead. My position would be better off if you were gone. Because that's what it took to get your inheritance early. I'd just do better without you, Dad. I could just... I just fare better. I just want to start a new chapter in my life, one without you in it. That is what he is saying. He's voluntarily orphaning himself. And since Adam, we have all been buying into the same tired lie that we are all better off without God holding us back. I'm still tempted to do this. I'll be tempted today. There will be something that will challenge me to say, yeah, 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 but I want this. And if you're not about this, then that means you're not about me. And I want to just orphan myself in that moment. All right, jump back into verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of My father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay. When God brings us a famine or an Assyria, I guess you could say, it is his love for us. That we would return. That we would go back to where we would find the most joy, and that is where God and our Father is most glorified. This son found himself on the backside of a famine, very vulnerable, very exposed, very isolated, very destitute, very victimized. He's an orphan. He did it to himself. He did it to himself. Can you imagine the shame he felt? He said with his mouth, it'd be better off if you were dead. How do you unsay that? How do you, how do you get your father to unhear that? The shame of what had happened. I'm going to have this image in my mind, most likely not accurate, but I have this image in my mind of the day before he leaves with his inheritance, packing up all of his stuff, saying all the mean things he'd always wanted to say. I always imagine the father with his arms around the son, begging him not to leave. Please don't leave. You're making a bad mistake, doing everything he could just to have this kid wriggle out and pull the arms off and leave and slam the door. How do you undo that? He created too much distance. He crossed the line. And this is what happens. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is what Jesus does. This is what good dads do. This is the fatherly care of Christ. This is what good dads do. They bring definition to the kid. You're not a servant. You're a son. They won't let shame take the moment over. They won't, they won't entertain that for a moment. Listen, that's, that is for you and for me, by the way. This parable is not just for parents who had teenagers. That's not why this is in the Bible. This is, this is in the Bible for you and me today. God will not allow you to work off your debt of rebellion. He won't let you do it. He won't let you have that. You were defined as a child, not as an employee for God. He will not employ you to work off your shame, but he will celebrate your return. He will do that. And this is how it changes our work week. Did you enter this room with pervasive sin in your life? Of course you did. Of course you did. There's something that you've picked up you can't put down. Something you're having a hard time with, whether it's anxiety or an addiction or an anger issue or some form of unbelief, there's no one in this room without something that is pervasively sinning. But is it hard for you to look in the mirror? Are you scared that people are going to find out that you're a fraud? That you're really not who it looks like you are? You feel like you can't stop? Are you not sure if even Jesus wants you close to him anymore? Doesn't want you near anymore? Like you've gone too far? He is everlasting Father. He is our forever Father. 
you will find him waiting in the field, waiting for you. With a smile on his face, tears of joy as he runs to embrace you. And no, he will not entertain any talk of you performing to impress him so he's not angry with you anymore. Because when he is fatherly, he is fatherly in the best sense of the word. Now certainly the son had to repent and come to his senses and return to the father. I've said this part of the story a million times. The dad did not send care packages to his son. He did not go into the foreign land to retrieve his son. But the fatherly love that would allow the famine to do its job is the same one that would celebrate a return to family. So hear me now. Whatever sin it is that you're living in, whatever pattern misbehavior it might be, let the adopting kindness of Christ provoke a celebrating return. Let it provoke that in you. And upon return, Jesus is not going to make you grovel. doesn't make you grovel. He's definitely not going to let you simmer in shame. You know, this younger brother, he thought this forever fathering was too good to be true. We do too, by the way. This is our struggle too. He thought it was too good to be true, which is why he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm just, let me work. Give me a position. I know I had the corner office. I'd be fine with a cubicle at this point. Let me do just the bare minimum to prove that I am worth liking again, worth loving again. You see, shame, which is what this kid had in our parable, and is what we do when we carry our sin to, to Christ. Shame doesn't believe in grace doesn't trust it. All shame will do is operate in transactions. If you have a shame-based relationship with Christ, it's a transactual one. If I perform a certain way, God will see me favorably in a certain fashion. It's a transaction. But what we need to understand about the best part of the gospel is there's already been the singular transaction that matters the most. It was the one that was accomplished on the cross. Because there was a transaction on the cross full of blood and shame and misery and glory at the same time, there is no more shame for you and me. No more to be had. The baby in a manger becomes our substitution on a cross. God's son, our shame. This baby in the manger that Isaiah has given four names to shows us hope. Shows us what fathering looks like. And how God is so good to give it to us. Because Jesus does on the cross what a good dad does. He defended us to the death. Like a good dad. He defined us with his own family name. He sent us in his own shape. His own genetics. He gives us purpose. He gives us definition. He said he's never going to leave us. Like a good dad. He's never going to forsake us like a good dad. He's never going to deny us like a good dad. Jesus on the cross, that's the best father in care you're ever going to see. It's the best father in care you're ever going to see. And as we close, he says this in John 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
Listen, here's some really good news. If you are in Christ today, you would call yourself a Christian today, you need to know that you've been adopted and he's speaking to you. He's speaking to you today. He's saying, don't let your heart be troubled because he has made room for you. Made room for you at the family table, in the living room. There's room for you at the house, room for you to be connected, room for you to be fathered, room to belong. It's good for you to know he's never going to leave you or abandon you. He's never going to hurt you or abuse you, never going to shame you. And my favorite part, he's never going to demand that you perform so that he might like you more and hate you less. If it wasn't for that, the gospel would be not so good news. He will never demand you perform for his love. And he will never entertain you being an employee or a servant for it. Listen, if you are not in love with Jesus, you'd be what what we've been calling an orphan today. Spiritually wandering, exposed. From famine to famine, from Assyria to Assyria. This burden of anonymous parentage that McKinney had quoted in the LA Times. This burden of anonymous parentage parentage that you've been carrying, this lack of definition that you've been walking with, this heart full of shame that you've been walking with, those things are perfect for the foot of the cross. The gospel's perfect for you. The good news of God is perfect for you. All of that stuff you bring. Start where you are. Repent for your rebellion. Come into family. Celebrate with the goodness of God. Go ahead and stand with me and We're going to take communion together and pray as a church for this specifically. And so, got it. Caleb is about to come back in here with these cups. We've been saying this every week. If you are if you are a Christian, you need not be a part of Legacy for this part of our service. But if you're a Christian and you would like to take communion with us, he's going to be bringing these little rip and sip cups in here. If you just raise your hand, if you didn't grab one on the way in, he'll toss it to you. And then you could just take this moment with us. But if you are one of these people that we've in fact described as an orphan or someone who's maybe skeptical of Christianity or searching through this thing called Christianity and you're not quite sure, don't worry about this. Don't worry about it. I'd love for you to see the truth in what we're about to do, right? But if you're going to take anything, I'd pray that you take Christ instead of this cup with juice and a wafer in it. But listen, Jesus loves us endlessly abounding with love, and not just for a moment, not just for a a brief moment. Like maybe when you were a kid and your father came home from a good day, and so he felt like a good father, but if he came home from a bad day at work, it felt like he was a bad father. We have a forever father. We have forever, forever we have fatherly care given to us by the truth of the gospel. And that is worth celebrating And that's why we find it in Isaiah, and that's why it's worthy for us to maybe focus on in Advent. So go ahead and take this wafer out. We'll do it together. These might be new cups. That was a little bit of work. Be careful. You'll end up with a shirt full of purple juice, and Legacy will not pay for your dry cleaning, okay? So be careful. Point away from yourself. (laughs) And so, Father, as we take this together, we say thank you for breaking yourself on the cross You made the singular transaction that ensured that all of ours stop. I don't have to pay off a debt or make a credit. Christ has done all of that, and as a brother, he is not ashamed to be called our brother. He he is the firstborn among a new family. 
that is built on the back of no shame. And so, Father, as we take this bread, we do so in remembrance of the gospel and in thankfulness of this new family. Oh, my. Be careful. They were at the factory. They were really excited about this batch of cups. They wanted to make sure that nobody could get into it easily. We'll edit all of this out. Not really. I am just now opening this. Have y'all been waiting on me up here, watching me do this this whole time? (laughs) So, Father, we thank you for what you're doing, even in your gospel, even today, that your blood today is still adding to your family, that there are orphans today, spiritual orphans today in Knoxville, Tennessee, in East Tennessee, in the Southeast, in our country, and in this world, that you are adding to your ever-expanding family, where Christ, your son, goes off to build a place even for them, even for them. Your household is growing. Your royal blood still still goes through the veins of new people every single day. So as we take this, we thank you that we have been included in this family tree. We thank you for your fatherly care. We thank you that it will lead us all the way to the moment where we get to drink with you at a banqueting table at the end of all ends. So we take this in remembrance of you. And so, Father, we thank you for what you're doing in your house. And Lord, we just pray that as people hear your gospel message this holiday season, whether it's today or just this month, Lord, that you would continue to draw hearts to yourself. Lord, I'm excited about the concept that the church will be bigger this Christmas than it was last Christmas. Not Legacy Church, but your church. Even though local churches all over the world are tiny right now because of a virus, I know that your Holy Spirit is making it bigger all the time. Your Holy Spirit doesn't, it's not restrained by a lockdown or a virus. So we pray for the growth of your church. And I pray that if there are any hearts in this room or listening online that are just looking for Christ to father them, that they would repent from their rebellion that they would call you Lord, God, and Father. That your Holy Spirit would change their hearts from one of stone to one of flesh. And that all the angels in heaven would celebrate another one added to this beautiful family. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in this moment. Thank you for what you're doing in your church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.